0: George Corwin was only 25 years old when he was appointed High Sheriff in Salem, Massachusetts. He was the son-in-law of one of the magistrates on the court that ruled over the entirety of the Salem Witch Trials and the nephew of two others. Two years prior to his appointment, he had joined Massachusetts Governor William Phipps in the Battle of Quebec. The conflict was a brash attempt to seize control of the city from the French. It failed utterly and saw the deaths of hundreds of settlers. For his service, though, and no doubt owed to his integration with the Salem magisterial elite, Corwin was awarded the authority of enacting the court's justice as High Sheriff, just as the hearings were escalating into an outright fervor. Our story begins weeks after Corwin's appointment, in the dead of a spring night, in the courtyard of a palatial Salem estate. The year is 1692. Orders, sir? We wait. Wait, sir? Just give me a minute. Footsteps lightly trod on Salem ground, approaching Corwin and his officers. The countenance of the man approaching is of dignity and simmering severity. Magistrate Corwin, your grace. Nephew, where are we?
1: My men and I were considering our options.
2: Options? There are no options. The woman was named along with the bishops take her. Yes, but... But?
1: This place, this family... If they resist, what could I possibly do?
2: I will say this but once, nephew. You are here by the grace of them you serve. The court's indictment is clear. The accusations verified. Representatives of Ann Putnam, Mercy Lewis, and Abigail Williams each confirm it. The harlot in that house has signed her name in the book. No grand adornments or earthly power will change that. She is no godly woman. And we will hear of her deeds. But... In order for us to do that... You must do your work.
1: Yes. I understand.
0: Do not fail your god. Do not fail us. As quickly as he'd come... The vision of Jonathan Corwin vanishes into the night. Sheriff George Corwin turns toward the building, straightens his overcoat, and approaches.
1: yes It's High Sheriff Corwin. We're here for Mary, she's
0: been named. Go and fetch your master. Inside the house, a couple sleeps on a large framed bed. It's the kind of bed only a handful of Salemites own. The room around them is sprawling, the home adorned with carefully curated international artifacts and an accumulated motley of family heirlooms treasured now for many generations. The man in the bed is named Philip English. At one time, and possibly even now, he is the wealthiest man in Salem. Originally hailing from the British Channel Islands, Philip has worked hard and learned much in his life. He owns a fleet of 21 trading ships, He's also invested in Salem itself and currently holds a large share of prime real estate in Salem Town. He is a fastidious, proud keeper of his kingdom.
1: Go and fetch your master.
0: What? What hour is it? The woman in the bed is named Mary English. She also comes from a well connected, wealthy Salem real estate family. But Mary's progenitors are somewhat rougher than her husband's. They have been known to scrap, a trait which certainly has been passed to Mary. She, in a time when such is abnormal, to say the least, runs various parts of her husband's merchant empire. Together, the Englishes represent one of the most preeminent families in not just Salem, but all of early America. They have friends in high places, a vast store of wealth, and are not to be trifled with. Who is that? What? At the door. Philip rises and leaves the bed. He walks down the steps and approaches the front door.
3: It's all right. I'll speak with them.
1: Good
0: evening, sir.
3: What's this about?
0: Mary
1: has been named.
3: So? You mean to take her? Now? Yes. No. You'll not have her. Good night. Mr.
1: English, it would be better for you if she came. Multiple people have submitted charges against her.
3: What those farmers yammer on about is no concern of ours.
1: It is now. There are whispers of your midnight deeds as well. I'll not barge in. Go and fetch her.
4: What is it?
3: It's the sheriff. You've been named.
4: Those children have named me? Us?
3: It seems so.
4: Well, then they've made a terrible mistake, haven't they, love?
3: What do we do?
4: "'Go back down those stairs. Tell the little Corwin that your wife is asleep and distempered. And should she be roused into wakefulness, there is no telling what peaks the volume of her voice will reach as she screeches through the Salem night. Tell him that every single powerful name that she knows of in this land will hear of this, either by the sheer sonic magnitude of her nocturnal yowling, or by the stroke of her decisive and merciless pen.' Tell him I have ways in this world that would entirely eradicate him, and so, therefore, have no need of the devils in other planes for my will to be done.
3: Mary, you know I can't say any of that.
4: Yes, I know. Tell him. tell him to leave and return tomorrow. He is barely more than a child, Philip. Speak to him as one.
3: She'll not come.
4: What did you say?
1: I, I am an officer of the High Court. She says come back
3: tomorrow. She says if you take her tonight, she will fight you at every turn. She'll see to it that all of our friends descend on this arrest. No man can stop them once they're in motion, and no man can silence her when she has an itch for a rabble. Trust me, I know. You'll have hornets for dinner, young sir. Is that what you want?
1: I'll come back at first light. Officer? Yes, sir? You are to remain at this door. No one leaves until I return.
3: As you say, good night, Sheriff. Well? He'll return tomorrow.
4: Every day they take more people. There'll be no end to it.
3: What are we going to do?
4: Do you suppose it's all just farmer superstition? What? The girls. What they see. Do you think there's any truth in it?
3: Not when they look to
4: us.
3: (laughs) I suspect it's far worse than superstition. Small fortunes have changed hands these last few months.
4: And now they come for the larger ones.
3: Aye. The church rewrites the past and destroys the future. What will we do?
4: I do not know, but I will, Philip.
3: Aye, you will.
5: This is Sheriff Cabot. It's June 29th,
1: 1914. And I'm here with... Your name?
5: Doesn't matter.
1: I need your name to take your story. No, you
5: don't. All right told Deputy Warren you had some information about the fire. I have information about many things, Sheriff. Well, out with it, then. Tell me about the blaze, Sheriff.
0: The blaze? You're supposed to be the one with the information.
5: When did it start?
0: In the early afternoon of June 25th,
5: four days ago. In. Where did it begin? What do you mean, incorrect? We know exactly- Just answer my questions. Then I'll tell you all I know. It began at the Corn Leather Company in Blubber Hollow. (sighs) Incorrect. Why did it spread so quickly? Building materials downtown. Too much timber. They've been warning this could happen for years. Incorrect again. I know. Question. What started the fire?
1: Sunlight, we think.
5: It sparked some celluloid. Spread to chemicals nearby.
0: Incorrect. The following morning, High Sheriff George Corwin arrives in the early morning hours to arrest Mary. She answers the door, in her bedclothes. Good...
1: Good morning. Goody English. Corwin. I assume your mother... husband... told you about last night? Yes. Then... shall we?
4: Uh, Shall we? Is that how you arrest everyone? Well, I rather like it. There's a certain poise about it that counters its speaker.
1: I, I just Corwin, meant-
4: look at me. I am clearly in no position to go anywhere.
1: But you must.
4: Yes. Yes, I must. Say eleven. Eleven? When you'll return? I should be composed by then, with a full stomach and a compliant tongue.
1: See here. I have already given you more time than I am inclined. Corwin. High Sheriff Corwin.
4: Yes, High Sheriff Corwin. I swear to you, come the midday, I will go wherever you choose. If you take me now, I will fight you, and I will win. A grown man can wait. So?
1: Eleven Then.
4: Thank you.
0: Bit swerving devil spawn. Corwin leaves and returns a few hours later. The sun is high as Mary English, now fully dressed, silently agrees to accompany Corwin. The pair do not, however, travel to the prison. Corwin instead takes Mary to the second floor of the Cat and Wheel Tavern in downtown Salem. By this point in the trials, hearings often draw large crowds, and this one would certainly be the same. With court space limited, taverns are often used as backup locations for initial interrogations, but before the citizens of Salem arrive, there is only the sheriff and Mary English. They enter into a room that Corwin has adorned with but a single chair. As the pair enter, Mary's hands are bound behind her.
1: Please sit.
4: Are we to be here long? I'm rather anxious to get on with whatever comes next. Could you at least remove my bindings, Corwin?
1: You don't understand this. You don't understand where you are. Look around you, witch. Do you see great powers in the shadows waiting to spring to your defense? Because I see none. I
4: see only you
1: and me. I know what you did.
4: What I did?
1: Your daughter. Her father was with the crown for five entire months, three August prior. And yet, you had a spring babe only four months after his return. Curious.
4: Philip and I understand each other.
1: That may be true. But does God see it the same way? Ah, yes. Now you're beginning to understand. It's all right, of course. I've done things in my past too. Just last year, there was the raid outside of town. Do you remember? Two dozen savages in the night? I don't blame you. I wouldn't want to remember either. I didn't see much of it, but what I did observe would make the devil weep. I was indisposed, you see. Just as the attack began, Something rather curious
0: occurred. George Corwin inches closer to the still-bound Mary English.
1: Goody English, have you ever had a moment of perfect understanding? One so clear that it made everything before seem dimmed somehow. One you were certain must come from God? No. Pity. I remember hearing the wails began from the tree line near the water. I was close, so I went to investigate. Having dealt with this kind before, I knew that remaining hidden would be the best option. So, I entered the woods north of the entry point of their raid. After only a few paces, a sudden movement startled me. I drew my weapon ready to kill. Imagine my surprise when a young, dark girl of no more than 11 should step out from behind a tree with her arms raised. Her eyes danced wildly in the night. I could tell she was confused. Something had not gone according to plan. From some quiet place within me, I knew that I must take her.
0: Corwin now looms directly over Mary.
1: Perhaps she knew some of our language. Perhaps she could be persuaded to talk. Perhaps she was useful as a ransom. (laughs) I told myself all these things and more, but the truth is, I just wanted her. I wanted to, oh, I don't know what exactly, but this morning, when you came to the door, I remember the feeling. It was the same, Mary. Hi,
4: Sheriff, you have oh, Please,
1: I only want to tell you this story and then we'll get on with what comes next. I took the girl to my home. I have a, a root cellar that flooded the month before and so was empty at the time. <laughs> Actually, it was very much like this room. I tied her to a chair. I asked her a great many things. She just stared down at the compacted earth at our feet, not a single utterance, no emotion, nothing. Finally, after two days, the girl relented, and of course I couldn't understand a word of what she said, but the curious thing was, it wasn't any conversational persuasion that ultimately ended her silence it was
0: this george corwin leans down and places his hand around mary's neck he squeezes lightly
1: just this so simple so elegant you have something i want my hand can extract it from you. And since it can, why shouldn't it? Why should God give me this strength if not to use it? Am I not of Him? Am I not doing His will by eradicating godlessness from His new land? <coughs> so clearly I kept my hand there until the girl turned cold and I felt nothing because she was nothing they are nothing this hand Mary it holds such dominion over the bodies of the wicked such dominion over you you have done evil have you not
4: everyone has
0: George Corwin raises his hand and places it on Mary's shoulder.
1: Oh, but you have done more. You are in league with the devil, are you not?
4: I... No. I am not.
0: Corwin moves his hand to her neck and delicately runs his index finger along her rapidly reddening skin.
1: Do you know where I'll be mere days from now? back at your mansion. To take your silly husband. Oh, but he won't come here. Very few people want to see the men questioned, you see. (laughs) There's no sport in it. I'll take him to my root cellar. Unless, of course, there's a reason not to.
0: Corwin places his hand on Mary's neck and begins to squeeze. Did
1: you oh, sign your name in
0: the book? Answer my me! Father you are but Lord, a devil's Lord. whore,
1: are you not? Yes, that's what you are. That's why you and your husband hold such sway on this earth. You have so much, You will give yourself to me now.
5: Who's there?
0: Me, nephew. Is it done? George Corwin removes his hand from Mary. He looks into her bloodshot eyes.
1: Do you understand now? mary yes good
0: very good corwin walks to the door unlocks and opens it ah
2: good afternoon goody english i trust my nephew has transferred you here in a fashion accustomed to your liking
4: he he has
2: very good now let us attend the matter of your bond i suggest Thirty pounds sterling. What say you, nephew?
0: Mary's hearing took place in the following days. She then was moved to the Salem dungeons to await further examination and ultimately a formal trial. The hangings had begun. While Bridget Bishop was the first to die, several others followed in rapid succession. There seemed to be no end in sight.
1: You done with your little show? Are you going to start answering some questions or am I wasting my time?
5: It's miraculous the number of tourists that are in Salem right now. How many do you suppose came here to gawk at the ashes? Half a million, we think. So far. That's humorous. It won't be the last time Salem's tragedies bring hungry eyes to town. All right, Sheriff begin. Ask me what I asked you. When did the fire start? September 19th, 1692. You're insane. Where is next, Sheriff?
0: Where did the fire begin?
5: That depends on your perspective. Some would say, at the very same spot, that a sturdy ash tree on a craggy hill once stood. Nearby corn leather, but not at the same location. Others, like me, would say it actually began in a field on the other side of town. There's no way it began on Just the other... Just keep going. Why did it spread so quickly? Someone willed it to. Oh, I shall take that to mean what started the fire? Sure, for now. A
0: dead man. In the days immediately following Mary's arrest, Philip English visits his wife three times a day. Five days after Mary is taken, Jonathan Corwin knocks on his nephew's door with an urgent message in hand. Yes?
2: It's me. Open.
1: Who today?
2: Sit, nephew. George, what would you call the process in which we are engaged?
1: I am not sure. I, I understand.
2: The trials, the hearings, the executions. If you had to name it something, what would you say it is?
1: I don't know. A, a proceeding, I suppose?
2: A proceeding? No, George.
1: A cleansing.
2: We are cleansing this kingdom. Yes. Of course. The devil cares little for the station of his servants, beyond the utility those stations may serve. But in that even is great power. Who can do more evil in the devil's name? A millman? Or a governor?
1: A governor, of course.
2: Aye, a governor. But a governor is well protected. Surrounded on all sides by a fortress of influence that shields him from God's wrath. And so, we must destroy it, stone by stone, until all that remains is the man within.
1: I understand.
2: Do you? Why do you think we have not yet arrested Philip English? He has been named.
1: I... I do not know.
2: No, of course not. We haven't arrested him because he too is surrounded by influence. We took Mary and not Philip for one reason and one reason only. So that he could see her in chains. And with that, his resolve would surely break His several husbands' resolves have now broken. Then, when he was weakened thus... It would be a far simpler matter to execute God's divine justice. But I hear he visits Mary three times a day in the dungeons. I hear they whisper in secret language.
1: Devil tongue, no doubt.
2: Latin, actually. The nature of their language is unimportant, however. Nephew, it is the content of their words with which I am concerned. Philip English shows no signs of desperation. I have watched him these last few days. He is calm, poised. I fear our thinking was flawed. Instead of disheartening him, his visits with Mary seem only to reignite whatever hell work the two concoct.
1: Perhaps we should end the visits? My thinking exactly,
2: nephew. Now listen to me and listen well. Today, you will walk alone to the English estate. Once there, you will execute the warrant for Philip English's arrest. Wait, this must be done delicately. His wife's imprisonment seems not to have influenced him in the desired fashion. So you must use some other means to convince him to come.
1: Can I not simply bind him?
2: No, you fool. Hands do the deeds of lowly souls. Men like Philip must have their minds bound. You must convince him that participating in not only his capture, but the subsequent hearings and trials is in his best interest.
1: But if he is in chains, what do we care about his mind?
2: Mark me, you do not become a man like Philip English or a woman like Mary English without being cunning, devilishly cunning. I do not know what they plan, only that they plan. And so must we, even as we rest in the certainty of God's holy light.
1: What do I say to him?
2: I have an idea on that front. After his servant beckons him to the door... Damn. I must go. We are hearing testimony. Listen to me. In order for the court to follow this trail of witchcraft to its source, it is vital that Philip and Mary English not escape justice. Whatever you need to say, say it. Do you understand?
1: Yes, Uncle.
2: Good. I have a brief window between hearings in three hours. I expect to find Philip English in this
0: room then. Good day. Good day. An hour later, George Corwin walks alone to the English mansion and knocks on the large door.
3: Sheriff.
1: Where is your servant?
3: I've sent her away. I hope you bring glad tidings.
1: Grim ones, I'm afraid.
3: I suppose you have some ill-drawn tactic to coax me out?
1: Why should I coax you out? Come
3: now. Do you think me a fool?
1: Uh, I think you a man of great learning.
3: There is no need for such flattery, Corwin. I will go with you. I am already prepared. Let us leave.
1: What? That easily?
3: Yes, of course. I respect the court. The cat and the wheel, then?
0: No. My home.
3: Just as well. Lead the way, High Sheriff.
0: As the two walk through the Salem day, Corwin's unease dissipates. By the time they arrive at Corwin's home, the Sheriff has entirely forgotten all his fear and hesitation. After settling in, the pair begin chatting about politics, the merchant trade, and the ongoing conflict with the First Nations peoples. Finally, the entry door to Corwin's home opens a full three hours later. And Magistrate Jonathan Corwin enters the room.
3: Then, Bartleby lifted up his crutch and slammed it down on Franklin's thigh, calling him a damned fine marksman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Uncle.
2: Nephew. I see your day's deeds were successfully executed.
3: He's quite the sheriff, is he not?
2: Yes, quite. Well then, shall we begin?
3: No audience. Not tonight. A Shame.
2: Philip English, you stand accused of witchcraft. Multiple witnesses have accused you of spectral contact and abuse. They claim you attained such powers by the way of a compact with the devil. Do you deny it? I do. Therefore, we must now administer a search for a witch's mark. Sheriff, remove his clothing.
0: George Corwin complies. Philip English is unaffected as Corwin removes layer after layer of expensive, well-tailored clothing. Eventually, English stands bare before the other men. Jonathan Corwin walks around him, examining his naked form. He lifts his arm and peers into his armpits. He spreads his buttocks, lifts his scrotum, shifts the curly mat of chest hair. Finally, he stops at a small pink mark above Philip's left nipple.
2: There. Look here, nephew. Is it not the devil's mark?
3: Aye, that
1: it is.
2: Excellent. Excellent. You may dress, English. You are to be escorted to the dungeon, where you will await a formal questioning. Bond?
1: One hundred pounds sterling.
2: Reasonable. I shall see to that- Four thousand. Excuse me.
3: Four thousand pound. That's my bond. What are you talking- It's talk- a fascinating place, Salem. So close to this new world, yet so removed. Now Boston. That's a burgeoning, vibrant city. We have many friends in Boston. One of them happens to be among the staff at their prison. So I put up a 4,000-pound bond to see to it that we were held somewhere a touch more understanding of our unique social position. The offer was accepted, what with your hands so full in Salem, This seemed like a far better option for all parties involved. My wife and I will be transferred in the morning, so unless there's a sturdy ash tree nearby and you should like to entirely upend the law, I would appreciate it if we moved along to the dungeons, or shall I sleep at my home tonight? I know floor space is so very limited in your little prison. Get out.
1: Nephew, I couldn't have known- I
2: heard you loose-tongued and jolly with him even as I entered. Did you not stop to consider why he was so jovial? I did. And yet, I did not hear you questioning him to get to the root of it. Did you ask him a single thing once you entered this house? I don't have time for you.
5: A dead man started the fire. Do you know how crazy that sounds? Many things are crazy. Why should I be different? Why should you? You may now ask for more information on any of our four answers, and I will divulge.
0: Why did it spread so quickly? mean by someone willed it
5: so? The easy answer is that we are in a drought. I would have thought your men would have surmised the connection. The more difficult answer is that the man who willed it to be so was also in a drought. There's a strange line between things here. It's unlike any place I've ever been. So you travel? traveled? Oh, yes, very much. I have seen a great many things. And how are we different here? What's this line business? The past here echoes in miraculous, terrifying ways, Sheriff Cabot. Are you of any relation to Lowry Cabot's Chance, I've never heard the name. Ah, I am too early. Do you know that every single Salem sheriff for the last 222 years has suffered some mysterious coronary ailments? I did. You will too. Do you know why?
0: The following day, the Englishes are moved to Boston. Their entire immediate family finds their way there as well. The Sunday before their trial, the prison minister reads to the inmates from Matthew 10, 23.
3: You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When You are persecuted. In one place, flee to another.
0: Later that day, a prison break erupts. In the chaos, Philip and Mary English escape to a carriage waiting nearby. They ride into the night, only stopping once they've reached New York. They are now well outside the reach of Salem's courts. Their children are protected. All of the Englishes that remains in Salem is their massive mansion in the center of town. After word of the English's escape reaches Salem, High Sheriff George Corwin, enraged, gathers a posse and ransacks the English home. The group steals or destroys nearly everything on the property. George even stows away some of the English family heirlooms, which hold only sentimental value in his own home. While the English family is pacified, they still play a powerful role in the trials, remaining in constant communication with friends in and near Salem throughout the insanity of the months ahead. Still, Sheriff Corwin's attempts to dominate and topple one of the most powerful merchant dynasties in Salem ultimately proves to be a failure. So it should be no surprise, then, that as the body count from the trials escalates into the double digits and more powerful members of the Salem and Massachusetts elite are accused, the High Sheriff's dark tactics become more visible. Before long, however, he will commit an act so monstrous its legacy will scar the American consciousness for centuries to come.
2: Giles Corey, you stand charged of wizardry by the members of this community.
5: What say you? I never did hurt them.
2: But your image did. In the dead of night. Tell us what your spirit did to these girls.
5: I have done nothing to damage them.
2: Have you never entered a contract with the devil? I What temptations have you had?
5: Temptations?
2: Yes, temptations towards the Devil's
5: Way. I... uh, I never had temptations in my life.
0: John Hathorne, trial magistrate, another relative of George Corwin, and colloquially known as the Hanging Judge for his punishment predilections, enters the interrogation.
3: What? Have you lived without temptation? We have it on testimony that you have been tempted to leave Salem, perhaps even to leave this world, which, as you know, is the deepest affront against our God. Many in Salem have heard of it. I
2: only meant Giles Corey, you have been mocked by Sarah Bibber. She claims you were frightened by a hellspawn in your cowhouse.
5: I never saw nothing but my cattle. Tell the truth. What was it frightened you? Nothing frightened me. Nothing
2: frightens me now. We have three witnesses here. The claim you told them directly you'd seen a terrible beast, one not of this world. I do not remember it.
3: Hmm. Abigail Halls. Stand, girl. Recount to us now what you did the day before last.
4: I have seen sights and been scared. I have seen dogs.
3: Ordinary dogs?
4: Devil, dogs. They come to me in the woods with a dark man. He offered me many fine things if I would but follow his will.
3: And what was his will?
4: To serve him. To sign my name alongside Giles Corey's and the rest of the night clock. He said Giles Corey will crush me to death if I do not sign. He said-
5: Lincoln.
2: Giles Corey, you stand accused dozens of your neighbors have entered charges against you. Now comes the time to enter your plea. Guilty or innocent man?
3: You must
0: enter a plea. Giles Corey steps away from the pew. He looks around the room. His gaze scans the faces of everyone he's ever wronged. He draws a deep breath and returns his focus to the magistrates at the front of the chamber.
2: Guilty or innocent?
0: With not a sound escaping his lips, Giles Corey simply shakes his head. Jonathan Corwin rises to his feet. Enter a plea. Giles shakes his head again.
2: Sheriff Corwin,
0: take this man away.
2: Hold him until he has come to his senses. Everyone else
0: dismissed. George Corwin takes Giles Corey away in chains.
5: When did the fire start? Yes, that is the correct question and answer. Remember, I said... 1692, uh, the witch trial. Not just the trials, a certain date, September 19th. Do you know it? No, I think it's close to the end.
0: Later that night, the sheriff and his uncle speak at George's home.
1: It is clever, refusing to enter a plea.
5: Clever?
2: It's devilish is what it is. Still, I admit there is a sharp point to his tactic.
1: Will he confess, do you think?
2: Not of his own accord. His wife, Martha, has been in chains for weeks will not be pressed on that front either, it seems.
1: Pressed? The specter, the girls say, sits on their chests until they cannot draw breath.
2: Vicious magic, that. Nephew, I grow weary of these proceedings. There rises so much resistance to God's divine will.
1: Yes, and so few tools to root out them that resist.
2: Giles Corey must confess. Of that I have no doubt. He holds sway, even among them that hate him. The evidence against him is quite a deal larger than most of the accused. If we cannot root out the devil here, and quickly, I shudder at our prospects for the future.
1: What would you have me do?
2: Visit Martha in the dungeons. See if she would speak to him, convince him.
1: And if she won't?
2: Well, that decision, I'm afraid, rests upon your shoulders alone. We cannot have a repeat of the English affair.
1: No, we cannot. I... I think I know what I must do.
2: I'll leave it to you, nephew.
0: That night, George Corwin travels to the dungeon to meet Martha Corey. On his way, he fetches the silent Giles Corey from his cell. As he enters Martha's room, he leaves Giles in the hall out of Martha's line of sight.
1: Corey have you been fed tonight?
6: Yes. Good. That's good. Why are you here, Corwin? Have you come to hurt me?
1: You are a godly woman, Martha. I am sure you have heard of your husband's silence in the court.
6: One of the exceedingly rare moments of silence from that man. I assure you
1: you seem displeased with him goody Cory I come to you with a request by this time tomorrow your husband's plea must be recorded
6: and by your estimation how is one in chains such as I a player in this tale
1: if you would speak with him Implore him to respect the sanctity of our proceedings. The
6: sanctity? Did you say the sanctity?
1: Yes, or at least the authority. If he does not speak, I fear I must do something I am not sure
3: I am prepared to do.
6: Ah, now I see you, child. Now I see you plainly.
1: Will you speak with him?
6: He is here.
1: Just outside. He hears your voice even now.
6: No. I'll not speak with him. I would have him hear this, though. We are stone, old man. Stone and tears and I shall see you when all the days before us are golden and the eternal winds have shifted toward our favor.
1: Goody Cory, I would have you listen Some to ago, me. time ago,
6: I met a man, a broken man. He had said and done terrible things. He had been scorned by his people. But after many long years, he had finally tamed the beasts raging in his heart. He could, at the very least, honestly admit to himself who he really was. That was a miracle. And though he sometimes faltered, I watched as every day he tried harder to live within God's love. The man broke and repaired my heart every day. He still does. He is my exact opposite, this man. He is loud and angry and vengeful in the light, but quiet and simple and godly in the dark.
1: How is that your opposite? Please, I don't understand what you mean. Am I to do this thing? This
6: terrible thing? Or can you help me? Corwin... You are before me and my kin and my God of little consequence. We have held fast to our ways and we will endure for it, even if you kill us, especially if you kill us. Mark me, boy, you are no devil. You cannot corrupt a willful heart. That is why you will not break my husband tomorrow. You will try, And you will fail. How could you ever hope to succeed no matter the tactic? You are but a child who has attached his life to oblivion. And for what? What great riches have you gained from this affair that you will keep once it is finished? None. You cast away heaven out of obedience. Like a child. Like an animal. Look me in the eyes, boy, what do you see?
1: I see nothing, just your eyes. Of
6: course you see nothing. You come to the cell of the wife whose husband you pursue on the dawn. You come to a pit in the earth where you have cast the woman you will slay, but five days hence, scheming for a method by which to unravel her husband? I'll give you something better. Do what you will tomorrow, because my husband has already won. I have already won. Play your part, little Corwin. Do the deed like the simpering, sore old simpleton you've allowed yourself to become. But spare me more breaths wasted. I have so few remaining. You have already lost everything you will lose, George Corwin. What's one more terrible deed? Or a hundred? Or a thousand? The ground has been seeded. You are empty. Now kill me or hurt me or leave me, child.
1: I... I am sorry I disturbed you.
6: No, you're not. Trouble me no more until my father calls.
1: As you say,
0: goody Cory. George Corwin drops his shoulders and slinks out of the cell. As he moves down the hallway, carting an old, silent, grinning man, an elderly woman's voice begins to sing in the darkness behind him.
6: Such a worm as I was, it for crimes that I have done, he groaned upon the tree. Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love.
0: A sleepless night awaits the young sheriff. By midnight, he knows what he must do. It appears as a revelation in an unquiet dream. He awakes and immediately travels to a darkened field just outside of Salem Town. There, he gathers his materials and prepares for the events to come. On the dawn, George Corwin composes himself, collects Giles Corey, a handful of officers, and a walking stick. He transports them all to the field. He stretches Giles out, on a long wooden plank and instructs his officers to bind his limbs. A pile of large grey stones wait beside the old man. Onlookers quickly accumulate. Everyone, George, Giles, the Watchers, everyone knows what's coming, though few can believe it.
1: Giles Corey, you stand accused of witchcraft. Owing to the laws of the court of Oyer and Terminer, you must enter a plea. How do you plead?
0: Corwin slowly collects a second plank and places it on Cory's chest. Once it is positioned, Corwin directs his officers.
1: Five stones.
0: The men comply. They place five large, heavy stones on Cory's chest. The old man gasps for air.
1: What is your plea? Guilty or innocent? What?
0: More... Wait. Five... stones. The men hesitate, then follow their orders. One of Giles Corey's ribs snaps under the weight of the rocks. He grunts and writhes.
1: Enter a plea, Corey. Guilty or innocent?
0: The crowd is silent. Everyone looks to George Corwin. In the hush of the moment, Giles Corey's eyes find the sheriff's. The old man grins. He whispers. More weight. Ten stones. Gasps erupt from the crowd. Some women and children leave the scene. Corwin's men hesitate.
1: I said ten stones!
0: Slowly. They comply. As each of the stones presses onto Cory, the sound of his agony becomes more and more pronounced. Eventually, even that vanishes as the animal meat for survival kicks in. Cory thrashes and grunts. He growls and spits and laughs and howls. Finally, as Cory's sternum cracks, as his throat fills with liquid, as he arrives on the precipice of death, Corwin speaks
1: You are a wizard, are you not? Guilty or innocent?
0: Giles gasps. His lips move, but he cannot seem to raise his voice above a whisper. He nods his head to Corwin, beckoning him to approach. Corwin inches toward the dying man. He places his ear beside Cory's lips as the old man strains to speak. Curse. You.
1: Curse.
5: Devil.
0: George Corwin leans back and looks aghast at Giles Corey. A strained, delirious, maniacal grin paints the old man's jagged jaw. In a rage, George Corwin leans onto his walking stick and lurches one boot onto the pile of stones atop Corey. Giles exhales his final breath as Corwin climbs fully on top of the splayed corpse, its tongue now jutting out from its mouth in onset rigor mortis. How do you plead? How do you plead? Answer me! Corwin takes his walking stick and shoves the dead man's tongue back into his mouth. You foul, loathsome blight! How dare you refuse me? How dare you! Corwin lifts his stave high above his head, ready to strike the corpse. A sudden gasp erupts from the crowd and catches George's attention. His eyes turn slowly toward the gathered onlookers, who watch him in horror. Slowly, he lowers the staff.
1: This man was of the devil. And what was done here was in God's name. Do you understand me? Do you understand me?
0: A few people in the crowd nod. Most are too shocked to do anything. Corwin climbs down from his corporeal perch. He looks to his gathered neighbors. He looks to Salem in the distance. He tries to speak, but no words will come. He feels nothing as he lurks away from the scene at his back. He does not afford another glance or consideration to what once had been Giles Corey. Shortly after is pressing, Martha Corey was hanged. They were the only husband and wife pair to be executed in the Salem witch trials. Their land remained in their family, their estate secured. Not so fortunate were Philip and Mary English. When the trials ended, Philip had no desire to return to the place and the people that had nearly killed them both. Mary, however, was desperate for home. They returned to Salem the year after the trials. Unfortunately, Mary wouldn't enjoy it for long. Mere months after their homecoming, Mary died of natural causes. Philip was crushed. For the rest of his long life, he made getting revenge on Corwin and the magisterial elites in Salem a primary focus. He sued George Corwin directly, over and over again, seeking the return of his precious family heirlooms and some remuneration for the massive wealth he lost as a result of the trials. All told, Philip English's estimated losses were between seven and 10,000 pounds sterling. A few years after the trials, the courts began to recompensate the victims of the hysteria. Philip only claimed 1,183 pounds sterling for recompensation, completely ignoring his 4,000-pound bond and most of his losses. Of that, he was awarded merely 200 pounds. To put that into modern perspective, Philip English likely lost over a million 2020 American dollars. Of that, he asked for a little over $300,000 in remuneration. He received only a little over $50,000. But the remaining Englishes actually fared decently well financially after the trials. This was largely owed to a swift decision in the days following Mary's arrest. Then, it seems, Philip had used one of his many ships to cart the family's most valuable possessions out to sea. When they returned to Salem, the ship docked in the port and the English family's wealth was, at least partially, restored. There is little doubt in the mind of many that this was, in fact, Mary's idea. Philip English lived to be an old man. The same cannot be said of George Corwin, however." Only five years after the conclusion of the trials, he died of a mysterious heart attack. Philip English would not relent in his attempts to seek retribution, even in Corwin's death. English successfully sued Corwin's estate, which meant that Corwin's remaining family must pay for their direct crimes against the English family. Some local legends claim that Philip English, in an attempt to collect the payment that his lawsuit had afforded him, claimed that he owned the lien on the sheriff's corpse. Corwin's family, endeavoring to protect his body, interred him in the same root cellar where he had reportedly tortured the accused. Lydia, Corwin's widow, eventually relented and returned the heirlooms to Philip English. Following this, Corwin's body was relocated to the Broad Street Cemetery in Salem, where he remains to this day. The Corwin house was torn down some time ago, these days, the land is occupied by a boutique hotel, which is, reportedly, quite haunted by George Corwin's ghost. They say he chokes guests in the night. But George Corwin's specter and legacy pale in comparison to Giles Corey's.
5: Only two answers remain, Shara. Are you beginning? to understand. I I don't feel well. That will pass. I am waiting. Where did it start? You said maybe by corn leather. Maybe in a field. Which is it? Near corn is where nineteen lost their lives at the end of a rope. The field is where one did beneath a pile of earth. Condemned. And... I, I saw their faces with yellowed eyes. I smelled the waste evacuate their shells. I watched their children weep and grow into broken people who broke other people. The final answer, man. I can't breathe. The dead man who started the fire. You know his name, Sheriff. I can't... I can't! Say it.
0: Child! Giles Corey's refusal to enter a plea and gruesome public execution helped to change the tide in Salem, and it would not be long after that that the trials would come to an abrupt and decisive end. Giles Corey's ghost is probably the most famous in all of Salem. There are reports from several eras since the trials of Giles's specter haunting the town, especially in the field where he was executed. Presently that land is Howard Street Cemetery near the Salem Witch Museum. He is reportedly a harbinger of terrible things to come. In the summer of 1914, there were claims of over 300 sightings of Corey's ghost in the cemetery reported to local police. So significant were the accounts that the local sheriff stationed several guards around the cemetery just in case some elaborate prank was in motion. They waited and watched, but saw nothing of the ghost. Thirty minutes after the men were recalled, a fire broke out near the site of the Salem Witch Trials' hangings, present-day Proctor's Ledge. The fire destroyed nearly two-thirds of Salem and would have done more damage if not for a mysterious shift in the wind. Many claim the fire and other horrifying Salem events before and since are the work of Giles' dying curse, which still haunts Salem's sheriffs, residents, and visitors to this very day.